Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Revelation, the book, Just I'm going to start with uh, something I don't think you're ever supposed to start a sermon with, and that is a pet peeve. It is uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the book, not uh, people say revelations, chapter, whatever. It's, uh, it's a single revelation of Jesus Christ, and, uh, and it's important to see that. It tells a whole story. It is not a book broken up of little clues and small mysteries that we are to unravel. The point of the book of Revelation is that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, it belongs to him, and he is revealing himself to the seven churches. And I'm not going to go into a great deal of detail about that. Hopefully over the next few weeks, there will be some time for us to slowly break into some of the nuances of the book of Revelation regarding the churches. This is not going to be a comprehensive study of the book of Revelation, but rather just the warning that Jesus gave these seven churches. It was written around uh, around 95 AD. And uh, if we understand every symbol and we understand every prophecy and the timing of all of the word that Jesus reveals, uh, but if we miss Jesus, then we miss everything. Because try to remember, Jesus is the point not to solve riddles and to you know, lay in our wants and wishes uh, of end-time prophecy. It's clearly to see the character and the nature of Jesus himself. In a lot of ways, it is the gospel according to Jesus. It is his own story revealing himself. Seven is a very significant number in the book of Revelation. In fact, it's used 463 times throughout all of Scripture. John uses the number seven 54 times only in the book of Revelation. There's seven stars, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven signs, seven plagues. In fact, the most of the book is about these sevens, and you get to the last section, which is the victory of Jesus. But we're called to see Jesus, not symbols. If mysteries are here to unravel, then Jesus will unravel them for us. He's very clear. He is the perfect communicator. And there's something that he wants us to know. He will reveal it. The first word of this letter from John is the word apocalypsis. It means an uncovering. Uh, unveiling, uh, a revealing. That's where the book actually gets its name. Remember, it is a book of prophecy, but prophecy does not have to be prediction. That's very, very important. Prophecy does not necessarily have to be prediction. What prophecy is, is to declare, thus saith the Lord. And that's what the book of Revelation is, is this is the revelation of thus saith the Lord. It's the setup, though, of things that, as 
John says, or Jesus says, which God gave him to show to his servants the things, this verse 1, that must soon take place. Now, this means one of two things, maybe both. But it means that either Jesus is talking about things that will happen soon or that when they do happen, they will happen quickly. The sentence structure that John uses allows for both of those interpretations, which is one of the reasons why this book is argued so much. People believe that all of this has already happened and others believe that it's still to come. I believe that in most of the things that Jesus taught, we have a now and later interpretation that the kingdom is now and the kingdom is coming and that he is now and he is coming and he comes and he comes again. And so I believe in a lot of ways that the book of Revelation can be interpreted in the same way. I believe that there are an ability to go in the book of Revelation and see things that happened quickly and things that when they do happen, they will happen quickly. And it matters to us which one because it helps us to decipher. And so when the mystery can be revealed, I believe it can be revealed, but I also believe that much of these prophecies are to help us understand the days in which we live, regardless of which generation that is. The book of Revelation has been profitable for every generation. It is not only written to the last one. And I think the culmination of that benefit is found in the warnings and the encouragement to the seven churches. But remember, we need to see Jesus. And I know that prophecies and predictions and trying to decipher the time that when, when Jesus is coming kind of, uh, kind of tickles all of us. And we all want to be eager to hear that and to be able to know and to mount our interpretations and to share our opinions. But Jesus said that only the Father knows when that time is coming. There are signs, but Jesus gave them in his life on the Olivet Discourse. And many of those things are found in the book of Revelation. And every generation could have said, Ooh, it seems like we're living in the last days. It's because we should always live with the expectation that we are the terminal generation. But regardless, there are many things that we can uncover, and, and there are things that Jesus teaches us very clearly, and so I want to make sure that we don't miss the things that we can understand clearly by focusing on the things that are a little murky. Verse 3 begins a series of seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now, these times in the church, there were specific people who were called the readers, and they would get up and they would read the text for the day. This is the understanding. It's not for those that are just simply reading, but reading aloud implies a communal gathering. So, just reading the words aloud, there is a blessing for those who do that. It's a powerful beatitude, but it is the first of, anybody want to guess how many beatitudes there are in the book of Revelation? There are seven beatitudes in the entire book. In chapter 14, verse 13, it says, Blessed are those who die from now on in the Lord. 
in chapter 15, 16, verse 15, it says, Blessed are the ones who stay awake and keep their clothes. What this simply means is the ones who are always ready for the second coming of Jesus, the ones who are alert, the ones who are watching, the ones who are waiting and expecting Jesus to return and have readied themselves for that judgment. In chapter 19, verse 9, it says, Blessed are those that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, up until this point, these four Beatitudes are given to those. They are communal blessings. Anyone who partners with the expectation receives the blessing. But in chapter 20, verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. This is alone a blessing to have partnered with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. There is a blessing to the individual who has received the life of Jesus Christ. Chapter 22, verse 7, blessed is the one who hears the book. Now, you remember the first beatitude we just read is to the reader, to the assembly. But here at the end of the book, there is a blessing to everyone who hears. And in chapter 22, verse 14 is the final one. Blessed is the one who has their washed their clothes and eat from the tree of life. Incredibly important to see the blessing that comes from living forever in the, in the presence of the Lord. Remember that the tree of life, we'll talk about this again nearer the end of the message, but the tree of life was found in the Garden of Eden and because of Adam and Eve's blatant sin and disregard to his word, they were ushered out of the garden. They were kept from the garden with the angels. And eventually... By the way, do anybody know how many times the tree of life is mentioned in the scripture? Seven times, three times in the book of Genesis, four times in the book of Revelation. This time in Revelation chapter one, although the rest of them are at the end of the book of Revelation, but there seems to be a pattern where not only was Adam and Eve expelled from the garden, but at some point in time, the tree of life is transplanted into the presence of God, which is where it was in the garden of Eden in the presence of God anyway, but it will also be in, in, uh, in the, the holy city. It's in heaven now, it will be in the holy city for all eternity. And we will have an opportunity to eat of the tree of life, which is what God had intended all along. This isn't a study on the tree of life, but it is a beautiful picture of a tree that grows on both sides of the river and it gives life and healing to the nations. What a beautiful picture. In verses four through six, let's read that. That's where we're going to pick up reading. And a lot of today is going to be introductory, although there will be some takeaways nearer the end. In verse number four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's only the description of God himself. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. And he's writing there to those who are reading those words then. The kingdom is not coming. The kingdom is now. 
He has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father to make him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. The words of Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Ah, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom of the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard him, I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to the seven churches. There are more than seven churches, but these are the seven churches of prominence that I want to receive a specific word. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw, how many? Seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of, God, of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. For I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So verses four through six, you know, the, the whole book that John is going to scribe is written to all of the churches. Each church is going to have in this book submitted a letter to them. And each church will read each church's letter contained in the book. Why? Because I believe that there is a benefit from learning what God thinks and expects from all the churches. I think it's a benefit to them because as, as they lived, they lived in if, if you see the order that the letters are written and as Jesus says to deliver them or to order them, they become circular. Ephesus being the chief city, that's the nearest postal code. They land in Ephesus, and from there on, they become a circle around Asia Minor, which is uh, modern-day Turkey. If you don't 
have a map to read, you can see, you know, we're, we're, we're moving toward the west from the Middle East, northwest, and slowly we'll be making movements up into Europe. In fact, these churches are going to be the catalyst for the Western movement expansion of Christianity. It's important that these seven churches, and by the way, well, again, we may talk about this in a moment, but it was out of Ephesus that the word continued to go forth and they became primary in the influence of these other churches. And so that's going to happen as they hold together. Their collected influence is going to do a lot to propel the gospel into the West. It's very important that these churches stay pure, that they stay true, that they stay right, and that they stay within the favor of Jesus himself, who is the head of every church. And this is what Jesus is trying to do, is to bring them not back to balance, but to bring them to his glory and the expectation. And so it's good for us to be able to see what God expects, because I believe that these seven churches are representatives of the, the things that every church can get themselves into. There are things that we can learn from them. So today we may be in Ephesus, but we may be struggling with the problems of Smyrna not long from now. We may be dealing with some Sardis issues at some time, and we know what God expects of these churches because we also have written record. But they were close enough in relationship to each other to be able to encourage each other in these words and to hold each other accountable. And it also served as a warning to them that we don't want to receive a letter of our own like that. So for warning and encouragement... And he begins by saying grace and peace and the words that are about to come feels like Jesus is kind of setting them up that grace and peace to you, but I'm about to blister some of your ears from the one who is present, the one who was and the one who is to come. This is the God who is. In these day of in this day of, of change and fear for John and the churches, it'd be a good reminder. Listen, the world was changing quickly in John's day. And and with that, you know, Christianity had a large part to play in that. But with that, grace and peace coming from the stable one, the steadfast one, the faithful one, the one they've read about, the one that they know the promises of, and the one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. What a great tethering that is to reality, the immutability of God, the changelessness of God and his faithfulness. Of course, we begin with the Father, and then there are the seven spirits. Sometimes that causes alarm for folks, but I don't think that it has to. Some say that these are maybe angelic spirits or territorial angels that had responsibility of like, like uh, guardian angels over each church that may be a reporter back to God's throne, but um, it, it certainly is a stretch. Uh, it's, I believe that the Scripture bears out that it is a, a designation of the Holy Spirit. John, John actually never uses the term the Holy Spirit. He never uses it that, quite that way like a lot of the other writers do in the book of Revelation. But in chapter 2, verse 7, and then again in verse 17 of chapter 2, he does say the Spirit. And so we know he is fully aware of how the Spirit works. Uh, it's not a foreign idea to him at all. 
But uh, there is a, there's a, uh, this, I'm going to get off subject for a moment, but in, in the book of Enoch, which is not canon, it is, it's, not, uh, it's not inspired scripture, doesn't necessarily make it wrong, but it definitely doesn't belong in, in the scripture, as does uh, the book of uh, Tobit, which is uh, also Jewish writings. Again, neither one of these are canon, and they're not to be, they're be taken for what they are, but both of these books refer to seven spirits that stay before the throne of God. And some say, maybe this is what it's talking about. What does it mean? We really don't know. But there's at least two times in the authority of God's word where there are seven responsibilities or ministries of the Spirit. The first one of those is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 2 and 3. I'm going to read that to us. It says, As it is written, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. There, are, in, in addition to the Spirit of the Lord, there's the spirits of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear. These are the seven spirits which are before the throne of God. This, this lines up almost perfectly with what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. He talks about the seven graces that flow out of the Holy Spirit. He talks about insight or prophecy. He talks about helpfulness as service of ministry. He talks about instruction or teaching. He talks about encouragement, generosity, that is in giving. He talks about guidance or leadership. And then he also talks about compassion. And these seven line up really well with Isaiah's seven ministries of the Holy Spirit. It's quite possible and most likely probable that rather than referring to simply the Holy Spirit, John goes into greater detail to talk about how the Spirit works among the churches and the responsibilities of that. Seven, seven being the perfect number, it implies that the Holy Spirit is working in all of his fullness. The reason that that I don't want to say even appeals to me because I don't want to lay my interpretation on it. But the reason why I believe that this is the proper application is because the seven spirits of God are found right between the Father and the Son and making up the, uh, the identity of the, the, the Trinity. So the Father, the Spirit, and lastly, the grace and peace comes from Jesus, the Son himself. So this work of God that he is performing in the lives of the believers have made us a collective kingdom, made us. And so we are a kingdom of priests, he says. So those who trust in Jesus Christ alone are clearly identified here. We belong to each other and serve each other as priests of his kingdom. When we say yes to Jesus, we move out of our citizenship of this world and we take on a completely different citizenship with a whole other legal system. We become representatives, ambassadors, ministers of that kingdom while we're waiting in this world. And it's so important. I, I am convinced that so many American Christians forget that this is not our home. And we become so tethered to the expectations and the culture that's around us that we forget which kingdom we're truly to represent. It takes about two seconds to realize that on Facebook. We do not belong here. Quit living like we do. I'm proud of where I live. But I'm so much more prouder of where I'm headed. And that's the kingdom we should be representing. 
I'm telling you, if, if that were the expectation from some, we're pushing people away from that kingdom because we keep trying to push this kingdom on them. I better stop because it's coming. Then in verse 7, there's a really weird thing that happens. It says, every every eye will see Jesus coming on clouds. Every eye will see him. Even Even those that pierced him to the cross will see his coming. And everyone will mourn. That, that word, uh, some of your translations may even say wail, but for different reasons. Some will wail because they waited too long. Because that he who is coming comes suddenly in the, in the twinkling of an eye. No, there's, no, there's no opportunity for another choice. Some waited too long. But others who have already received Christ will also wail for those who waited too long. But here's what John says. It almost seems rather cold. Some, their time is up. Others, because time is up for the people that they love. But John says, regardless, even so, amen. The wailing is worth it. Eternity is worth it. You know, Lord, it says that he is not slow, as some consider slowness or slackness. That's not, Jesus isn't delaying his coming because he's slow. Jesus is delaying his coming because he is merciful. And he's waiting for more people to come to him. But it will be too late for some. And that should cause us mourning even now, let alone when it actually occurs. What John is saying is eternity will be worth the trouble. In verse 9, John clarifies his equality with the reader because it's really easy, especially for Christians, to start paying tribute and homage to those who have a special encounter with God. You know, we put them up on this pedestal, but John says, no, no, I'm just, a, I'm just your brother. I mean, I'm a, I'm a partner. I am a, I'm a co-wailer with you. I have been through trouble, and I am in trouble right this very moment. I'm being punished because of the word of the Lord and because of my testimony of it. I mean, the only reason I'm on Patmos pounding rocks is because I have been faithful. I'm a nobody. Sometimes I wonder when the apostle James was pierced through with the sword, how much, I mean, again, this is insert blame here, but how much better that might have been than John's life. Okay, they got pretty upset that John wasn't going to have to die for his faith, but boy, oh boy, history tells us that John didn't have it easy. John went through a lot of terrible, terrible things. Having to drink poison. They took glass and chipped it all up really fine and put it in poison and had John drink it. Imagine that. You imagine having your your body dipped in boiling oil? I think I'd rather have the spear and be done, right? Oh, John gets to live forever. John's like, well, if I could see the future right now, I'd probably want the spear. John said, I'm a, I'm a joint heir of trouble. I'm, I'm, to know, I'm a nobody. But he hears the voice of Jesus and he saw the seven lampstands. And these are clearly, even Jesus says, they're the seven churches that are about to receive the seven letters from Jesus. Also notice that the seven lampstands are separate from each other. 
but seen collectively. And I think that's very important for us to see that even as a church, we have individual responsibilities and will be judged individually, but still we are the church of Jesus Christ. Big C, little c. We are responsible to each other, but we also are very responsible for ourselves uh, as well. And judgment comes to both. Jesus is walking through the lampstands, and this is symbolic of him observing and watching, and it sets him up as the judge of the churches. And his judgment is right, and he's always in the right place at the right time to see the right things. And that means that on that day, not one person will be able to have a defense. When Jesus judges, you will not be able to say, but. He knows all, and he is in complete authority. He warned us of this when he was alive, and he still does. He is with us even to the end. And for some, that should be good news. Oh, man, listen, when you're on Isle of Patmos and you're struggling, Jesus is with me. But there's a lot of Christians that ought to tremble when they think of the situations that we find ourselves in in disobedience to know that Jesus is with us. But he observes the church. He observes each one in the church. And his judgment is perfect. It's righteous. And uh, I say this with all the grace and all of the mercy I can. He's not lenient. A righteous judge can't be lenient. He's got to be right. When Jesus came the first time, he came with grace and mercy. When he comes the second time, he comes with righteousness and holiness. And it shouldn't surprise us. He even said that by the washing of the water of the word of God, he would make his bride pure and without blemish. That's what he's looking for is a spotless church. His goal is the purification of the word of God and how that looks lived out in the life of a priest in the kingdom of God. Verse 13, he says, one like a son of man. So this is not like he looked at him and saw Jesus. What he looked at, he saw the, like the image of, of a man. You know, he had features like a, a man in human appearance. And Jesus loved this description of himself because it helped, it helped other people be able to identify him not only as God, but also as a man. Identifying with humanity in his flesh, and that's really important. But this, this person is obviously Jesus, Jesus God, but is revealing himself in the form of a man. But this is no man. This is the glorified Jesus. It says he has a long robe. This is the long robe of dignity. This is priestly garment. This is judgment garment of the church. He is working. This is duty clothes. Jesus is observing as our perfect high priest, and he's judging all of the kingdom of priests. And it says that this sash that he wears is gold that he cinches himself up in. Now, there's not a whole lot of mention of gold sashes in the Scripture, but this is a picture of long ago. In fact, one of my favorite pictures that the Lord paints in the Old Testament, uh, the picture of Jesus, is found in Exodus chapter 39, verse 29. I'm going to read that. It says, uh, this is in the, 
description of the robes and the clothing that the priests were commanded to wear. This is one detail of that. It says, And the sash of fine twined linen of blue and purple and scarlet yarns embroidered with needlework as the Lord had commanded Moses. Well, everything matters. We know that. And we're talking about symbology anyway, but I want you to see here that we're talking about blue and purple and red. And those are very important. Those are very important colors that we find repeated over and over in Scripture, and they all mean something. For instance, red represents man or the earth, sinful man, fallen man. Adam's name means out of the red earth. You have not long after that, well, thousands of years, but you have Esau, who is, his name means the red man. He has red hair. And I'm not, I'm trying to avoid anybody with red hair right now, right? Red, if you're wearing red, just disregard all of this. Uh, And when Esau forfeited his right and made a terrible decision, he did it for a bowl of red lentil soup. And so over and over, you see man's fallenness Uh, Esau not being the one that was chosen and his impulsivity and all of those sorts of things flow out of of red. And again, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time focused on that because it's, you know, it's, it's rather unclear. And well, I believe until you get to Exodus chapter 39. But the second color I want to focus on is blue. And every time that you see the color blue in Scripture, it's always representative of the clouds or of the sky. Most of the time, it refers to uh, the kingdom of God, heaven itself, uh, even when it focuses on, on the sky, specifically heaven. So you have red representing the earth, and you have blue representing heaven. And what does red and blue mix together What color does it make? So when you're looking at the priestly garments, you have the earth and heaven, and in the middle, you have the bridge, which is Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons why it is so important when Jesus was representing the sin of mankind, but standing in the gap for the wrath of God, you have Jesus wearing purple robe. But now after the resurrection... You have Jesus cashing in this high priestly garment for a gold sash, one that is complete. Beautiful picture of Jesus' authority in earth, in heaven, on earth, and his completion of the work that God had given him. Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, these are often used in the book of Revelation as a culmination of a description. If you go back and read those prophets, you will see that there's so much similar information there. In fact, there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. Of 404 verses, 278 actually refer back to an Old Testament passage. Many of those verses have two or three allusions, not illusions, allusions back to the Old Testament. Well, if you just take the verses themselves, it's 68.8% of the book of Revelation is a picture drawn from the Old Testament. 
It's very important for us to see that the passage isn't, I mean, a lot of those prophecies were certainly predict, predict the future too, but it's important to see the whole book working together from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament and the cohesion that it is. The, now, the Old Testament is never directly quoted, not exactly, but almost every verse has an Old Testament throwback. It would be similar to as John is writing, not to quote, but to say, well, this reminds me of this writer or that writer. It's also in, interesting when you begin to go through the description of who Jesus is as he's walking among the, the churches to see that a part of his description, John's description of Jesus is found in the introduction of each of the letters to the seven churches. Well, except for one. We'll get there when we, when we get there. But Jesus is here, he says, the ancient of days, the eternal one. His hair is wool. That means, uh, you know, as white as snow. And that in the Old Testament, actually, that was used as an illustration of God the Father in his wisdom. Here, it's Jesus the Son. Not to say that Jesus is the Father, certainly not, but that they share joint wisdom. The whiteness of the hair is wisdom. Amen. I'm just kidding. He also has eyes of fire, searing gaze, qualified to judge perfectly. What he sees, he understands perfectly, sees everything clearly, and has a purifying vision, cuts to the core. This refers to his omniscience, being able to see all and understand all. Feet as burnished blazing bronze, means that his steps are perfect too. Where he walks is perfect. His timing is perfect. His steps are strong. His steps are stable. The burnished part of the bronze represents his speed and his strength. His voice, like the roar of water, implies his strength and his authority. And in his right hand is the hand of power, the hand of authority, the grip the seven stars and these are the messengers that we will talk about in just a few moments these are the the pastors the representatives those that are responsible for the direction the vision and the correction being in his right hand implies that they are in his care under his authority and from his mouth comes a double-edged sword and this is the word of god that cuts both ways it lays both sides wide open so that he can see. This is the word of God. His face shines with the full strength of the sun. This represents power and strength as well, and it even says so. If we were to see this one with our eyes, I think it would mark us. I think we would respond just like John. John was so overwhelmed and so overcome, his knees buckle and he falls as a dead man at the feet of the Ancient of Days. That just like Jesus did when he walked the earth, he reached down with his right hand and he looked at John and he raised him up and he says, don't be afraid. You know me. Don't be afraid. And what's in view here is humanity's fragility as compared to Jesus' strength. His victory, his judgment, his power, his presence. And he says, I am the living one, John. We are reminded of the resurrection and that Jesus 
who died on the cross took the keys of death and hell away from Satan himself and now holds those keys. This implies victory. And we cannot miss Jesus' right and ability to judge everything. This passage is the perfect picture of Jesus and his collective resume. And I'm afraid that if we try to read the seven letters without knowing who the revelation is of, I think we will, and I, I honestly, I think many churches today are guilty of forgetting who Jesus is. And he's writing our letter as well. John wrote in AD 95, we already said that, Domitian was the emperor. He was the, uh, the leader. And Domitian also demanded to be worshipped as God. He resurrected this Roman cult of emperor worship. They were on again, off again, depending on who the emperor was. Uh, Domitian had just deified his father, Vespasian, and uh, his, his deceased brother, uh, who was, uh, was Titus. And uh, while never inscribing it on a coin, there are many historians who say that whenever you saw Domitian, you would refer to him as Lord God. Those who refused were punished. Hence, John on Patmos, pounding rocks. And it's easy to see Christians today in our country losing favor, losing footing, shriveling because of loss of cultural freedoms. But it's not a new thing for the people of God. It's only a new thing for us. If, if it would take lazy research of Christianity to go back and not see the difficulties that have always been a part of following Jesus Christ. So let's not be surprised that the world wants to shift our kingdom to their view. Let's not be surprised when they keep trying to strip us of every ability to announce a different kingdom. It's threatening to the powers of this world. And you can either fight flesh and blood or you can do war in the heavenly places. Time won't allow for us to do the long history lesson. Over the past 6,000 years, the track record of persecution for those working to maintain loyalty to the one true God and the truth. But in the midst of all of that volatility, you will always see the church coming to life and continuing to experience growth and purification. Revelation chapter 2. It's the first letter is to the church at Ephesus. We just finished the book of Ephesus, and so I'm going to leave a lot of those details out, but I do want to go ahead and cover this very quickly. All of these letters will not be this quick. But I want to give you another history lesson of Ephesus in the context of Revelation chapter 2. In Acts chapter 18, you can go back and read it there if you would like to, but Paul, while he was in Corinth, met a couple, Priscilla and Aquila. 
And he left them in Acts chapter 18 in the city of Ephesus as little gospel seeds. They were men and women of peace, a man and woman of peace. And their primary job was to begin to gather people and to share the gospel just locally. There is no church there. And they did a great work. And there is a small group of Christians. They were then taught by, again, Acts chapter 18, by the the preacher Apollos. Apollos was a man who waxed eloquently in the Old Testament. He knew the scriptures in and out and was a, and he even knew who Jesus was. He believed Jesus was the Messiah, but he only knew the baptism of John. He had been baptized for repentance, but he did not recognize the, maybe the resurrection quite as clearly as he should. And so Acts chapter 18 tells us that Priscilla and Aquila, while he was great at uncovering Jesus, he was not great at giving new life in Christ in the Holy Spirit. And so they taught him the God gospel there. And for some time, Apollos continued to preach. But his message of of baptism for repentance had caught on with many in Ephesus. And so when Paul actually did go back to Ephesus, he ran into some folks who were preaching Jesus. And he asked them, if you remember, he asked them, have you uh, received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? They said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And so Jesus taught them these things and they were baptized and they received the Holy Spirit. This is the fledgling church that is sprouting up in Ephesus. And Paul stays there and there begins to be this outbreak of riots and all of this tremendous life change in the midst of devastation. I'm going to go through this rather uh, quickly, uh, the history in uh, of Ephesus. And so you remember Paul is is preaching and for 3 months he is preaching in the synagogue and eventually it gets to be just too much and there's uh, lots of division and so Paul leaves the synagogue and he goes out to the school of Tyrannus and he preaches there. He stays there for th- for 2 years preaching. And there are more and more people coming to know Christ and the church is building so much so that the sorcerers are giving up and they're coming to Christ. He actually reaches the, the leaders of the synagogue, the priests are coming to Christ. All of the uh, idolaters are coming to Christ. Even the ones who make the idols are coming to Christ. And the magicians and the sorcerers are taking their spell books and throwing them into the fire. So much so, they, they track it by 50,000 pieces of silver. This is an incredible work taking place in the most pagan city known to man at that time. Ephesus was a sanctuary city. Well, the temple of Artemis of Diana was a sanctuary temple. If you were a criminal, no matter what you did, you could go to Ephesus and live at the temple for free. It's really weird to me. But inside of the center of the temple to Diana was a bank where the richest people kept all their treasures. That doesn't, I mean, I... I'm not a rich man, but I'm not going to leave my treasures where the criminals of the world's allowed to live either. But worship to Diana was just a, a workup of every possible indulgence. Ephesus was ultimately the city of the world. It was the harbor city, the port city to Corinth, which is where everything luxurious lived. Anytime that the Jews or Rome especially wanted to martyr people in the Colosseum, they would actually cause their travel to go through Ephesus as a warning to anyone who didn't stand firm to Rome. It's in this city that 
Paul spoke boldly of the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And when the Christians speak boldly in their culture, they see people's lives changed, maybe not the culture. Culture didn't change all that much. In fact, Demetrius the silversmith, who his primary job was to make idols out of silver, calls Paul out. And in fact, at one point, they start taking Christians and dragging them to the city street. And the leaders of the city even said, hey, we got to knock this riot stuff off because Rome's going to find out that we can't control our own riots and Rome's going to start sending representatives here. Paul wanted to go. Paul wanted to get in the middle of it and help. All the other disciples had said, no, 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 Paul, you can't get in the middle of that. We can't lose you too quick. So Paul bailed, and uh, not because he wanted to, but he, he left and began to do other work. But he had established in this city such a powerful movement of God that it made a difference, and it transformed lives slowly so that it began to transform the city. Now, you know the book of Ephesus when Paul writes back to these folks that he had established as leaders and how often he told them, hey, this, this is how you love. This is how you serve. This is how you manifest the grace of God. Make sure you love this and love this and love this. Love each other. Love your neighbor. Love the lost. You need to love your people that you worship with. You need to love your, your employer. You need to love your employees. You need to love your kids. You need to love your wife. You need to love your husband. You need, this is how you love in a world that doesn't really value the way you love. It's different. It's really important to see the message that Paul gave just maybe 30 years ago. His church is not that old. But the Bible says that they were doing extraordinary works. You remember, it was even in this city that Paul was wiping the his head, and they were selling handkerchiefs. They were bringing these handkerchiefs and healing people. I mean, this is, this is really crazy stuff. And everybody says they're confused, and they don't know what to do. They don't know how to, I mean, I mean, this is happening, but we also value, you know, and Diana and all of those things. And this temple, Diana, was like a block and a half by a block and a half. It was huge. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And so these two cultures are really in really stark contrast to each other. People didn't know what to do. When the sons of Sceva come in, into Ephesus and they say, wow, we are going to do what, you know, what Paul does. And you remember what they said. We know Paul and we know Jesus, but we don't know who you are. These demons, casting out demons. and What, a, what an incredible work. Well, this is the letter. 30 years later. To the angel, the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. That's a very interesting word. Kopos means to work in such a way that you become weary, like, like you're out of strength. You ever worked so hard that you just couldn't take another step? Maybe not. That's what the word means. And your toil... That means just the last amount of strength when you may not even be able to see a difference. And your patient endurance. Boy, if there's three things I want the Lord to notice, it's work, toil, and patient endurance. Stick-to-itiveness. And how you cannot bear, 
cannot, not will not, cannot bear. Their conviction is so fierce. There is no compromise whatsoever with those who are evil. And he goes into a little more detail in that who are those that are evil? Those who call themselves apostles but are not. He found them to be false. I love that they are the ones. They didn't just follow some apostles and saying, don't trust them and don't trust them. Paul told them in the book of Ephesus, remember? He told them that wolves are going to come. And they did. And the leaders of Ephesus said, not today. We know you. We know who you are. We know that you're not truly an apostle. We've been testing the spirits to see if they be of God. And Jesus himself applauds that. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my name's sake, which is much different than just bearing up. And you've not grown weary. You're exhausted, but you're not weary. Now, I can tell you that if I'm the pastor of this church receiving this letter, I'm probably standing just a little bit taller. It's a pretty good, pretty good letter so far. Feeling pretty good about ministry. Verse 4, but I have this against you. And my heart just dropped. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. That love that flows out of the relationship of Jesus Christ. That, that love that informs every other love. We've already talked about that, but that love that informs how I treat my wife, that love that informs how I treat my husband, that love that informs how I treat the people that I worship with and how I treat my children, that love that informs how I'm going to love my neighbor as myself and how I'm going to be a lover of hospitality and a lover of strangers and how I'm going to pray for those who spitefully use me and my enemies. This is the kind of love that, you know, it's easy to say, well, their love for Jesus. That's, that may be true in a very simplistic sense, but that love of Jesus, out of that love flows every other form of love. It's the motivator. That one love motivates every other love. And they are fierce about truth and doctrine, but they've, been known, they've become known for their intolerance of people not like them. But the truth matters so that we will know how to love. That's why the truth matters so much. It's, it's love and grace and truth all together. If all we have is truth, then what we will do is we will hole up and we will take sides and we will become critical, grumbling. We become us and them. We become divisive on every issue because only our opinion matters. And we will stand on the authority of God's word to be angry, and to hate. And that's what they've done. Well, you may become pure, but you've also become ineffective. When we only focus on truth, we can work hard, we can study hard, but when we lose application to the truth, we don't know how to love. The truth doesn't matter when you don't know how to love. They lost their why. They become exclusive. They become rigid. They become intolerable. Again, they could do good work, but without love, it doesn't matter. Works do not matter without love. And many do this today. 
In fact, I would say today is the perfect time for us to receive the letter to the, book, to the church of Ephesus. Focus on ourselves. I need to get more and know more and be more and set more and attend more. But there's very little practical application of the truth of Jesus Christ going out. Very, very little change effected in the lives of the Ephesians anymore. We'd rather sit back in our four walls and point fingers, tell them what they should be believing, but we're never demonstrating the love of Jesus Christ. We work hard and hunker down, separate ourselves. It may even judge rightly, but without love, Jesus is going to put your light out. That's what he promises. Without love, Jesus will put your light out. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. One of the luxuries of Christianity is that you don't get to start where you are. You get to start from where you derailed. Remember from where you have fallen. You need to go back. You don't need to turn over a new leaf. You need to go back and fix the leaf. You need to go back. In fact, here's how I know that. The next thing he says, repent. Change your mind. Understand. Agree with me on why love exists. You need to recognize. You need to be sorrowful for your intolerance, for your judgment. And do the works you did at first. You notice there's three things that they are to do. To remember, to repent. And what happens when you remember and repent? There's application. And to do, to do the works you did at first because that was good. All that stuff with Demetrius and all that stuff with Sceva and all that stuff with the handkerchiefs, that was good. That was changing the world from Ephesus. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. You will not call yourself by my name anymore. What do you say? Unless what? Unless you repent. What's the most important thing? Nothing can happen unless there's repentance. It's not unless you do. It's not unless you remember. It's here's what's going to happen. You are going to repent for forgetting to love people with the love that I have. Allowing my love to flow through you. Oh, listen, you hate, here's what he said in verse six. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. I'm not going to get into all of that. He says, which I also hate. Hey, our hates are the same, but our loves are not. This is where we're headed with all the divisiveness that I see. And I'm not a prophet, and I I don't have righteous judgment. But when I look around at the influence of Christianity in the West, this is what I see. I see division. I see Christians who love division. I see Christians who force division instead of looking at ways to love, to finding how can I 
respond the way Jesus responds? How can I manifest the character of Jesus instead of digging in? Brothers and sisters, it's got to stop because this is the hope of Ephesus that God's placed us in. We, we are becoming a pagan land and we have the recipe right here for how to live in it. And we've got to go back and do the, the works that we did at first and maybe not our works. We need to go back to the first works of the church and learn how to love all over again. Verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear. This is what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 11. Let, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. But here, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, to the one who wins, the greatest warrior, the chief warrior. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask you to stand. Listen, I don't know what it looks like this morning. I know that this book was written 2,000 years ago, this letter to this church. This church, uh, I mean, again, I'm no authority, but this church has continued to, talk, to be talked about up until the middle of the 14th century I think they figured it out I think it got their attention I think they said oh boy we better repent I just wonder what we'll do because I truly believe that we're living in Ephesus and I believe that we've seen many wonderful works of God and we've seen our lives transform But I wonder how guilty we are of just holding up with our righteous judgment, refusing to serve, refusing to care, refusing to minister. I, listen, and to balance this out, Jesus himself says, you, you rightly know when, when to dig in on certain things. It's just not, I mean, he's not telling the church that they should just be, you know, absolutely tolerant, include everything. There's, there's clearly a right and a wrong. But it's one thing to hate. It's another thing to love. You can hate righteously. Obviously, we hate sin and the evidences of sin. But we got to learn how to love people. And I'm not talking in a humanitarian way. Unsaved people know how to love people. Unsaved people know how to serve. I'm talking about loving with the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Learning how to love people selfish, selflessly. How to love people sacrificially. How to love people into the kingdom. How to build relationships with people that matter. How to, how to not be afraid to speak of the gospel. Listen, if we wait until it's popular, easy, legal to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus, it will never be. It never has been. It's never been. 
You look at, at Afghanistan right this very moment. The church is exploding. They're not waiting until it's legal, until it's easy, until it doesn't cost them their lives. I read of a church just this week in Afghanistan that a couple months ago ran about 200 people. They're at 3,500 people in two weeks. Muslims finally seeing what true love looks like when it's compared to whatever it is that they believe. Powerful. But it's coming. It's coming at the blood of people who said, I'm going to love to death. And I'm going to tell you, it's one thing to say, you know what, from now on, I'm going to. No, listen, there is no from now on without repentance. And that's what I'm asking us to do today. So let's repent before the Lord. The church at Ephesus had some great leadership. Priscilla and Aquila, Paul, Apollos. Paul sent Timothy. Timothy pastored Ephesians to Ephesus. Tychicus, great church leader. The Apostle John pastored there two different times. He actually went back to die there, buried just outside of Ephesus, supposedly. John, I don't know how old he was. Certainly would have been old in AD 95. Uh, Some would even say early 90s. Probably a teenager when he walked with Jesus or so. Who we, We can't know. But he was an old man and he outlasted a lot of believers. And he'd already written the letter to Ephesus in Revelation. And he went back to Ephesus to die. And history tells us that every week they'd pull John, the apostle, in and walk him down to the front of the church. And he would sit. And whomever the pastor was, eventually Polycarp of church history pastored there as well. And each pastor would look at Brother John and say, Brother John, you have a word for the people. John would make his way to his feet and say, love the brethren. Wow, out of that love, the love of Jesus Christ and all the things that there is to know don't have love just sounding brass a clanging cymbal if you know everything there is to know but you don't have love if you have everything that there is to have if you can speak every language but don't have love if you if you even give your body over to death but don't have love love the brethren and may we repent and continue to repent until we learn Lord Jesus we thank you for what we have in Jesus we thank you for what we have in you and all of the blessings that come from you the grace that we have and all the possessions that you instill upon us and I just pray Lord as we read this word, there is blessing to the reader. I pray that there is blessing to the hearer today. I pray that we remember who you are. I pray that we remember who each other is, fellow priests in this kingdom, 
that you are putting together. I pray that we remember the power that we have. I pray that the world around us will come to know who you are as they see the love that exists in your kingdom. Where we have failed, Lord, where we've made it about us, where we've made it about our culture, where we've made it about our individual rights and freedoms, Lord, we can hold on to those without making your kingdom about those. So Lord, help us to do nothing that gets in the way of the revelation of Jesus Christ through us. In his name we pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.